my parents got diversity visa. They came here and they were not in a position that they could bring the entire family. So me and my sister, we were left behind. We weren't wealthy in Jamaica, but I saw every day, even at that early age, the material benefits in terms of having family away, including my parents. Those were the voices of Kamika Bennett and Pranaya Batarai. Both Kamika and Pranaya came to the United States to reunite with their parents, who had immigrated years before them for financial reasons. Their stories are not unique. A number of people we interviewed for Words in Transit had to learn to live apart from their parents for part of their childhood. Kamika and Pranaya speak about how it felt to be separated from their parents, as well as what it was like to finally live together as a family in the United States. Hi, I'm John Vosey, executive producer of Words in Transit. Words in Transit is a project of New England Public Radio and is being offered in conjunction with the release of a book of the same name, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Our goal was to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in western Massachusetts and to present stories of individuals that have settled in the United States from around the world. Here's Tema Silk, the managing director of Words in Transit, to tell us more about Pranaya and Kamika. Kamika Bennett hadn't lived with her mother for eight years when at the age of 10 she emigrated from Jamaica to New Jersey to join her. Until then, Kamika had lived happily with her grandmother and extended family in a small Jamaican town where she believes her relatives have been since the age of slavery. Although her mother came to the United States to better her family's financial situation, ironically, it was only once Kamika had moved to America that she remembers feeling poor. Here's Kamika's story. In the 90s, people in my family started to move to the U.S. There's been a long tradition of Jamaicans moving to the U.S. So for maybe 100 years, there's been relocation from Jamaica to the United States. And my family was just one more family that relocated to the United States. So my mother wasn't the first to come. I remember when I was growing up in Jamaica, I understood that I had many family members in, in the United States. During Christmas times, holiday times, they would come visit. In terms of immigration, there is still, I think, an old model that's assumed that people move and that no one ever returns or the relationship between two nations and the way that the immigrant relates to the home country and the new country is... There's a severance, but in many cases, there aren't. That's basically what happened to my family. So people came, and then they would come back every every holiday, and new people would leave Jamaica, and then they would come back every holiday. So there was definitely that back and forth. So when my mother came, me and my other siblings stayed in Jamaica with our maternal grandmother. And so we were raised there for those years while my mom was away working in the United States. I knew that my parent was away. I knew that my parent was working hard for me. And I realized that because every single holiday, I got the biggest presents. We weren't wealthy in Jamaica, but I I saw every day, even at that early age, the material benefits in terms of having family away, including my parent. They tend to call us barrel children. There's even like a phrase for it. My case is not exceptional. There are these barrels that people will often pack and they would send material goods back to Jamaica. And so I have a lot of family members who are here whose status was 
basically they had a legalized status, so they were able to go back and forth. But there's a way in which our family, that immediate family got severed from our family in Jamaica. But we also, me and my sister, gained in a different way new family because our family that was up here, we were now living in the same country. And then they were a middle unit to the family that was still in Jamaica. So whenever they would go back and forth, they would come back and provide us whatever cake my grandma made me. So it was a lot more complicated than I think people tend to understand. It might very well be less about the imaginary of a nation that you're leaving behind and uh, a lot more about the people in your lives. There was definitely a sense of being impoverished here that I did not feel when I was in Jamaica. So I'm living in a very, very wealthy country. And to feel that impoverished status like weigh heavily on me as a child versus basically living in a third world country and just going around. I have all of these people in my family who are in the U.S. and they get me everything I want and my grandma loves me and all my uncles are coming this Christmas and my cousins are over there. Like it was a very different feeling to be here. So I'm from New Jersey, having a backyard, basically having like a house compared to coming here and living in an apartment. I remember once my mom would tell me, don't go outside because people steal children here. And I was, I was just like, what? What is this country? <laughs> You've just heard Kamika Bennett. Next, we'll listen to Pranaya Bhattarai. Pranaya Bhattarai was born and raised in the southern part of Nepal. When he was a young teenager, both his parents were granted diversity visas. Pranaya assumed he'd be going to America, too. But there wasn't money for tickets for him or his sister. His parents left their children in the care of relatives and settled themselves in greater metropolitan Hartford. Pranaya believes they were among the very first Nepalis to move there. Years later, when Pranaya was partway through college, it became possible for him to join his parents. Here's Pranaya. My name is Pranaya Vatrai, which is kind of simplified name in American version. Uh, the way it's pronounced in Nepalese is Pranaya Vatrai. So we have 36 alphabets in our Nepalese language versus we have only 26 alphabets in English. So there are some words that it's hard to translate when it comes to English language. I came from Nepal. It's a small landlocked country right in between China and uh, India. It is gorgeous from natural resource uh, standpoint, from the forest, greenery, all the Himalayas, the hills, and also the plains. And if you think about Nepal, it's kind of like a brick, and it's divided into three different segments, right? So you have your Himalayas on the top, and then in the middle you have hills, and in the bottom you have plains, which is also called the food basket of Nepal, where you do a lot of agriculture, you grow foods, and then that is distributed throughout Nepal. I grew up in the plains, and although Nepal had most of the highest peak in the world, I had never seen snow before I came to the United States. So people think that I came from a really cold place, and I'm okay with being really cold and with all the snow in Connecticut, which I'm not. I grew up in a very hot place. When I was uh, 13, 14 years old, my parents got diversity visa. It's also called diversity lottery. So the visa that the United States of America issues to the third world countries and to other 
different countries to bring different diverse population to the United States. So my mother was the lucky one who got the lottery and they came here and they were not in a position that they could bring the entire family. So me and my sister, we were left behind. Even though you're not doing a white collar job, the money that you make here, when it goes back to Nepal and translate, include that foreign exchange, it becomes a lot more. So they really wanted a good life for me and my sister. And that's the reason why they came here. Initially, I was very happy because I thought I was going to go come with them. But we all were happy because we knew there was something brighter waiting for us, you know, if we just get through this whole process. And I stayed my first two years, and that was when I was doing my ninth and 10th grade with uncle and aunt and cousins. And after that, I moved to the capital city because unlike here, when you graduate from 10th grade, you are now going to college. So 11th and 12th grade is considered as college in Nepal. So I went to the capital city and stayed there with, you know, sometimes in hostels, sometimes with cousins and friends and got that education for 11th and 12th grade. And then I started going to college too. I I finished my 12th grade and I started going to college um, in Nepal. Through the midway, I think I was done with my third or fourth semester, and I got the opportunity to come to the United States because my parents, once they came here, they petitioned for me and my sister to come here. And my sister is still not here yet because when they were here, my sister got married, and now she has child and then husband, and when you petition for all of them, it takes a little bit more time. As I came to the United States, I started going to the gas station. I, I worked there for you know a few months to save that initial money to come to the college. And you know going to a four-year university was pretty expensive. Plus, you needed all the SATs and English tests that I didn't have, and I was not really willing to do that either. So I started with Capital Community College and. I thought, you know, if I had really bad English, they'll put me in ESL, you know, English as a second language, and then eventually I'll go to a four-year college. That was always the dream. As I was going through a school in Capital Community College, I heard about the C3 program, which is Capital Crossroads to Careers, which was uh, in, in conjunction with Capital Community College, uh, Travelers, that's how it started, and later they involved Central Connecticut University and the University of Connecticut so that after you graduate from Capital Community College, you had a choice to go either to CCSU or UConn. When you are in that program, you also had the opportunity to go through a year-round intern rotation at Travelers. And one of the things that I thought was really tough for me when I went, you know, first went to work to tra- at Travelers was writing emails. You know, I never wrote emails in my life. So I was always scared about, did I write too long? Is it too short? Am I being too direct? Are people going to not like it? So I had to think about all that thing. So I was very nervous every time I had to hit that send button in that email. When I came here, there was a little bit of cultural shock very small things that we take for granted. For instance, being able to, you know, get up in the morning and take a hot sour, you know, uh, which is inside your apartment. Most of the apartments in Nepal, you had, you know, you rent a room or two, and then there's one common bathroom for everybody in the whole building. But here it was different, you know, you have your own laundry, you have own small kitchen, everything. So, Small things like that, I felt like, wow, this is this is what it feels like being in a first world country, you know. And then the big highways, gigantic highways. I can't fathom how big the highways are. Every time I saw one of those things that is very scarce in Nepal, I said, I thought to myself, wow, this is really amazing. 
having internet in your own apartment, having electricity that would not go out unless there's a huge, you know, storm or the event. But when my parents came here, they were one of the very first people who, who came to the United States. There were a few people, but very, very few. You know, everybody is engaged in their own job. My my mother sometimes tell me that she used to go grocery shopping when there was knee-deep snow in the road. And people would look at them like, what are you doing? It's, it's snowing. And they would be in huge layers of layers of clothes. And they would walk to the grocery stores and bring grocery back because... They didn't have car or they didn't know how to drive. So they had to struggle way more than what I had to go through. There were definitely instances that I felt like maybe I can't do this. And I'll give one of the example I can give you is driving. Never been in in the front driver's seat of a car. And my first day when in a driving school, I tried to get into the passenger seat and this guy yelled at me saying, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> You're supposed to be in the driver's seat. That's the whole point of taking driving lessons. I didn't even know what the gas meant. Back in Nepal, we called it accelerator. So we didn't call it gas and then brake and then you have steering. I know pretty much nothing about car or driving, you know. I thought I would never going to pass a driving lessons. I failed twice before I finally got my driving license, but I did it. Sometimes we are very mechanical. You know, you wake up, go to work, come home. You're very tired. Have a dinner. You you do the same thing over and over. And I have seen a lot of people waiting for the weekend. That is the aspect that I miss of Nepal. I never felt like, oh my God, when is the weekend going to come here? You know, even when I was going to school, when I was volunteering in different human rights organization in Nepal. I never felt that. Every day was a brand new day, and I didn't have to worry about when the day is going to end. A lot of things that we enjoy here, people will die for it in third world countries. Even if you grew up in really affluent society, think about how your forefathers, how your earlier generation, how they struggled to make this country what the country is today. And there are a lot of opportunities in this country. I feel really sad when a lot of people say there is no opportunity. You got to work hard. You got to work hard. You have that courage that you could do things and just believe in yourself. That was Pranaya Bhattarai. Before Pranaya, we heard from Kamika Bennett. To see photographs of Pranaya and Kamika and to hear all of the Words in Transit interviews, visit our website at nepr.net, where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. Let us know what you think about Words in Transit. Review us on iTunes or send an email to radio at nepr.net. To see additional photographs and to read transcripts of all of our interviews, See the Words in Transit book, available from the University of Massachusetts Press. Proceeds from the sale of the book benefit the Words in Transit Immigrant Scholarship Fund at Holyoke Community College. Next time on Words in Transit, Undocumented 2. We hire a coyote. From Guatemala, we have to hide in the cars and houses. And we are about 14 guys in a van, and all on the floor, one next to the other one. And the guy say, keep your heads down. And they bring us to a house full of people, 200, 300 people in a small house. I wasn't aware of being an immigrant and the emotional charges that came with it until I was in eighth grade. 
Our next podcast is the second of two episodes featuring stories of individuals that came to the United States without documentation. We'll hear the story of Jose Palacio, who came here from Colombia in search of work in a better life, and Saul Grujan, who came with his family from the Dominican Republic. It was only as a teenager when Saul needed a social security number that he realized that he and his family were undocumented. Saul also talks about coming out and being ostracized by his family. That's next time on Words in Transit. The managing director of Words in Transit is Temis Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help in this podcast from Sara Redigieri. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College.